Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Jeremy Kuzmarov. He's just published a book, Warmonger, How Clinton's Malign Foreign Policy Launched the U.S. Trajectory from Bush to, to Biden. It was just published December 1st, 1st 2023. And Jeremy's last name is spelled K-U-Z-M-A-R-O-V. And I will put a link to his website, which is his full name, in the show notes so you can click through. And I actually reached out to him, I think it was earlier this year, about an article that he published in the magazine Covert Action Quarterly. And I read that into the record for the podcast. And the title of that, and I'll put that in the show notes too, if I remember, is Did J. Edgar Hoover Order the Assassination of Martin Luther King Jr.? And so that's a great article, really good information. But this is not his first book. He's also written Obama's Unending Wars, Fronting the Foreign Policy of the Permanent Warfare State, also Modernizing Repression, Police Training and Nation Building in the American Century, and then The Myth of the Addicted Army, Vietnam and the Modern War on Drugs, and then also The Russians Are Coming Again. The First Cold War is Tragedy, The Second is Farce. And again, we're going to talk about this book, Warmonger. I was, we were talking in the pre-show and how I was in kind of D.C. at this time. I was working, I was going to law school, and my wife was working on Capitol Hill for a congressman. So I was kind of in the mix of a lot of the stuff in a very secondary, tangential way. Not as anybody of any power of authority, but just in a, as an observer. But uh, we can talk about it. So I'm kind of familiar with a lot of the facts. So Jeremy Kuzmara, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Awesome. So for people who may not have heard your name, maybe not Covert Action Quarterly, maybe you can talk a little bit about your background, your books, and what led you up to publishing Warmonger in December 2023. Okay, well, uh, I was um, uh, 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 well, I studied uh, history. I did a, a PhD at Brandeis University, and my thesis was on the Vietnam and the modern war on drugs. So I was looking into the drug trade in Vietnam, and uh, you know, I interviewed a lot of Vietnam veterans, and that's what got me into the you know rabbit hole of the CIA, uh, because I you know, I read Alfred W. McCoy's book, The Politics of Heroin, which I highly recommend. CIA complicity in the global drug trade, and I looked at the CIA support you know for the drug trade in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War, and that was kind of my introduction to the corrupt world of the CIA. And uh, you know, since that time, I've done uh, a lot of research and investigation, I guess, into the covert and you know, dark side of U.S. foreign policy and political life, and that kind of took me to the Clintons. And actually, yeah, well, I I started teaching uh, at the University of Tulsa, so uh, and then I was invited to a lecture at the University of Arkansas Fayetteville, and there were a lot of local activists at the lecture, and I I only knew I heard about Mina, but I really didn't know a lot about it, so uh, they, you know, um, educated me about that, and I wanted to look more into Clinton's career and background. Uh, so in this project, yeah, I, uh, I, you know, the book starts. Uh, the first few chapters address uh, Clinton's, you know, rise to power and his time as the governor of Arkansas, uh, and also goes in has a chapter on the Mean Affair and his role. And what I found was that he had a central role in the Iran-Contra uh, operation in overseeing this MENA armed and drug smuggling operation 
from the western part of the state of Arkansas. Uh, so, and that kind of sets the background of this project for you know Clinton's presidency. And it's a kind of hidden story, you know, how Clinton really was uh, tied with the CIA on you know, the so-called deep state, and was a kind of gung-ho proponent of U.S. you know more militaristic interventionist foreign policy, and how that plays out in his presidency. Right, so he has contacts with like you. You talk about Felix Rodriguez, the guy who hunted down Che Guevara in South America. Like a lot of those contacts, a lot of people don't know about his CIA background, and maybe not emphasize it as well that he was um, known to the CIA at a very early age when he was going to the uh, and when he was in I think it was Oxford, right? So he was out there for. What was it? He was a he was a Rhodes Scholar, right? And you have a quote from Cord Meyer Jr. in your book, right? Can you talk Correct. about that? Yeah, and I would credit Roger Morris, who did a pioneering uh, book on Clinton's background called The Clintons and Their America. Roger Morris was a former uh, uh, staffer to uh, National Security Council who resigned over the bombing of Cambodia. And yeah, you know, Cord Meyer Jr. openly, I think he got drunk or something. You know, Cord Meyer Jr. was a pretty high-level CIA operative, and he admitted that the CIA had recruited Clinton. And, you know, Clinton, when he was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, and it should be noted that Clinton never graduated because he was accused of sexual assault, even at Oxford. Uh, so he was a Rhodes Scholar, but he didn't get his degree. And there was actually a, a, a state, an FBI or State Department investigation into this incident. Uh, but Clinton, when he was a student at Oxford, was a roommate of Strobe Talbot. And Strobe Talbot, who later became, uh, well, Talbot is really one of the key uh, coordinators of the Russiagate scandal or hoax. And he, Talbot played a key role in Clinton's State Department and, and Clinton, the Russia policy. But he came from like an old money family in Ohio, and his uncle was the secretary of the Air Force, uh, and they were, you know, Yale skull and bones type. And so it's probable that Clinton's recruitment came through his connection with, with Talbot. And, you know, Talbot became the editor of Time magazine uh, for the Russia, Russia desk. And, you know, that's a clue that he's CIA because uh, the CIA infiltrates uh prominent media, notably Time Magazine, particularly, you know, related to uh, Russia and certainly in the height of the Cold War. They were all on that. And Clinton was, and Talbot went to Russia. I think his recruitment by the CIA was for a mission to Russia where the two of them uh, smuggled the memoirs of Nikita Khrushchev out of the country. And they wanted that translated. And, and Talbot ultimately translated because he was a Russian speaker and Russian specialist. Uh, and that served U.S. purposes in the Cold War because Nikita Khrushchev, you know, had given the speech denouncing Stalin and was extremely critical of, of Joseph Stalin, knew some of the inside dirt about Stalin. And that was good for the CIA and U.S. government, you know, in the heart of the Cold War to publicize how bad Stalin was because the U.S. looked good uh, and, and righteous uh, in confronting Stalin. So. Uh, now, it's suspected he may have been an informant in the anti-war movement because Clinton did attend some demonstrations in London, or at least one major demonstration. 
and it's speculated that since he had these CIA connections, uh, that um, he may have been informant on the anti-war movement. But yeah, and I mean, it's clear he was because, like, uh, you know, Clinton did not come from a wealthy family, so how could he have afforded these travels in Eastern Europe? And that's what Cord Meyer said in a statement that you know we were the one who funded him, and he was always, and I think he used the term. Uh, part of you know the three bad uh, letters CIA. I think Meyer gotten drunk. He wasn't supposed to say that, but he he admitted it. And there's some other corroborating evidence. Uh, but again, that connection with Strobe Talbot I think is crucial. Yeah, no. So Clinton is surrounded by these bigwigs. Cord Meyer was a very top CIA ag- ad- agent for people who don't know, and he kind of ran the the initial Mockingbird program. Um, there's a famous picture of him with Einstein. Uh, his wife was murdered sometime in the 60s, Mary Pincho Meyer. And I think it's Mary's Ghost. There's a book there by, uh, I can't remember his last name right now, but there's all a lot of intrigue around there in the 60s regarding his ex-wife and JFK and things like that. So he wasn't just some kind of lone CIA agent at all. He's very well connected. Mm-hmm. So for him to say that is, gives it a lot of credence, yeah, that, it's, that, he, that Clinton has an intel background from the very beginning. He has kind of like a charmed... Yeah, uh, systems, yeah, and it makes sense if you look at Clinton's role in the, you know, as governor of Arkansas, because he basically turned the whole state into a CIA proprietary, uh, and you know he oversaw this major operation in the Contra War, uh, so it, it makes sense uh, that uh, you know he would have this connection in the past, and his behavior, you know, it kind of plays out, and even if you look at the years through his presidency. Right. So this and that operation, a lot of people may not understand its magnitude. It was not some small 10 person thing. It was a huge industry of training, guerrilla warfare, arm shipments, drugs. Right. So it's like almost like an it's almost like when Kennedy is talking about this alternate kind of um, group of people with its own force and military force. That's almost like what he was talking about in that famous speech at the American University, I think, in 1963. It's almost like that was transposed into uh, Clinton's Arkansas in some ways, like a whole underground network, right? Absolutely, yeah. It was a huge gun smuggling operation. Like, one thing I learned through my research, and, yeah, their record, there was a group of graduate students, you know, at the time in the 80s, when this was going on, early to mid-80s, there was a group of students at the University of Arkansas, Fayetteville, who formed a committee to investigate this, and they assembled a lot of information, damning information, and they deposited their papers at the University of Arkansas Fayetteville. So uh, there's a lot of info uh, there. Yeah, Mark Swaney was the head of that committee. I think he's still around, uh, and he's among the most knowledgeable. But what you find in those records, like one thing I found what, that interested me uh, you know, and exposed how this thing operated was – that the, there were two CIA operatives, like they shook down local gun gun shop owners to get the gun, to assemble the guns that they then smuggled. Uh, on you know, Barry Seal was a key figure in this. He was a, a CIA pilot, uh, and he was flying a lot of the planes, and they would fly guns to the Contras and then bring back drugs, and they shook down local arms dealers. In one case, they basically stole this poor guy, uh, his whole, like, they stole a lot of the weapons from his uh, shop, and then they didn't pay him. You know, they promised they would pay him, 
they never paid him and he went bankrupt and then they they caused all kinds of problems in his life because you know they saw him as a problem and they made his life miserable uh, uh so this was you know very unsavory but the, the other thing yeah, i learned is that you know clinton really support like he set up this Arkansas Development Finance Authority it was supposed to be this economic development uh, agency you know, to boost the state's economy. But a lot of the loan, well, first they were going to his political donors, and they were also going to, like, arm manufacturers. He turned, like, Arkansas into a headquarter for the you know, military-industrial complex, and he was subsidizing all these arms makers, and, and that was the weapons that were being sent to the contrast. So... Arkansas, yeah, really was very central. And then a lot of drug money was coming back and they were laundering in local area banks. Uh, so, and there were all kinds of anomaly that was noted by federal investigators. Uh, like banks were committing all kinds of crime because you're supposed to uh, only, uh, only allow to deposit like $10,000, but they were constantly violating this. So, right. Uh, and I mean, you know, and there's huge amounts of but the investigations were all quashed. Uh, Clinton made sure that these investigations never went anywhere. And that was how he played a very key role as the governor uh, to make sure that, that uh, you know, this was, uh, this was basically covered up and any investigation was quashed. Right. And there's tons of money coming in. I've heard people estimate not millions, but billions of dollars were coming through Arkansas. So they had a really full-time job in laundering and covering all that stuff up. And one of the interesting things, I didn't know reading your book was that seal worked for Ted Shackley. So you just see the CIA is all over these guys and all over Clinton. It's and the big wigs, you know, not, uh, not the kind of, you know, guys are out operations doing stuff, but the central figures of all these characters, Shackley, operation mongoose and things like that. But, uh, Absolutely, yeah. And if I could add a uh, Jackson Stevens, who was a key Clinton donor, who owned the Stevens Inc., which was the largest uh, hedge fund outside of Wall Street. He was a key person as far as the movement of money. Uh, and he set up a firm, uh, Systematics, for data analysis. Uh, but I think that enabled some of the money laundering. And he was trying to bring the BC. He was the one who helped bring BCCI into the United States, Bank of Credit and Commerce International, which became infamous as a, a bank for uh, you know, laundering money. And then Hillary Clinton and, and Vince Foster were at the Rose Law Firm, and they did some of the legal paperwork uh, for these banks. Uh, so they were very central in that operation, too. And that, that is overlooked, you know, the role that Hillary played in the Rose, Rose Law Firm. Uh, so, Right, and just tons of intrigue at that time. You talk about the boys on the tracks. That's a whole nother show. But uh, just a lot of people suspiciously dying or uh, things like that back in Arkansas. And then you go into what Arkansas, or actually Little Rock was, was kind of like, what do you call it, the something the Gomorrah of the Midwest or something like that. Like, that's what Bill Clinton grew up with. And there's been multiple people trying to figure out who his real dad was. But uh, I think Christopher Hitchens said that Blythe, who supposedly his dad, could not have been his dad because he was overseas at the time. Uh, he supposedly had relations with uh, Bill Clinton's mom. So you mentioned this guy, right, who I've never heard. But Bill Clinton's really a remarkable guy, like it. Uh, just the fact that people aren't really totally convinced about who his father is, is one thing. Well, yeah, I, I think, you know, there's the media image uh, and then there's the real, you know, backstory. 
And I think, you know, Clinton's case, yeah, I mean, his family had connection with organized crime, like some of the seed money for his first political campaign came from uh, Raymond Clinton, an uncle who was tied with the Dixie Mafia. And then, you know, from the beginning, he was involved with some very unsavory character like Dan Lassiter, who was also a key figure in the, in the Dixie Mafia. Uh, and, um, you know, so, I mean, what we saw late, what later came out was connection with, with Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, that started earlier with Lassiter. You know, he would host these drug sex parties and Clinton and his brother Roger were involved in that. And, you know, he, he was donating to, to Bill's political campaigns. Uh, and yet, you know, Clinton cultivated this image as this, you know, liberal uh, figure. Uh, but, you know, uh, I mean, he was so uh, corrupt behind the scenes. And, and then, you know, his policies, I go into his policies as governor. Uh, he really catered more the, uh, you know, corporate interests in the state. Uh, so it was just an image. Uh, you know, he was very, I mean, he was a very gregarious personality. And, I mean, like he was effective as a politician that he could give a speech uh, to a certain group and uh, make like, you know, they uh, were with him. And, you know, he was saying exactly what they wanted to hear. You know, he would speak to like the, the, the banker, the businessman uh, and tell them one thing. And then he would speak to, you know, AFL-CIO and AFL-CIO thought he was, uh, you know, he was with them. And their friend right, directly <laughs> contradict himself in the same day. Right. Yeah. Like just, so, you know. I mean, he, he played the game of politics very well, uh, but there's a real yeah dark side about him uh, and his family. And it goes back. Uh, and apparently, you know, he had an abusive size of personality, like even abused staffers. He had a horrible temper. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, that, that gives you a sense of the man. Yeah. He, you know, he, and that two facedness approached his foreign policy. Right. I mean, I think that's the whole gist of your book is that that was how. He conducted his foreign policy, whether it was Oslo, which is uh, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, or what happened in the Balkans, among other things, right? Or Russia policy. I mean, it, uh, like, I mean, Edwards, you wrote in the intro, Edward Said said Oslo was characterized as a Palestinian Versailles. Like, these are pretty intense statements. Like, uh, it didn't benefit the Palestinians, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, he, he, and this was, I think, crucial at the end of the Cold War because, and this gets the heart of the kind of thesis of the book, you know, you had Robert S. McNamara, I mean, uh, the architect of the Vietnam War, is saying now the time for a new peace dividend, you know, the Cold War is over, our enemy has been defeated, let's reinvest, you know, in America, let's uh, invest in education, you know, in health care, we can cut our military budget uh, significantly. Uh, and here comes Long Clinton, and he's, uh, you know, crafts this kind of rhetoric around hum humanitarian intervention. Oh, we have to, uh, you know, fight in the Balkans to stop genocide. I mean, he makes it seem like there's this kind of moral humanitarian imperative to sustain these high military budgets and to carry out overseas wars. Uh, and that seemed to have, I guess, hoodwinked many in the liberal community. Who, uh, and they saw him, I think, misleadingly as somebody of their generation who had been in the 60s movements, but as we were discussing, that was really a facade. I mean, yeah, he had kind of dressed in hippie garb, and maybe he was part of the sexual revolution. But not even in that area, yeah, he had been thrown out of Oxford for sexual assault. And there's evidence that not only was he a womanizer, but actually a, a rapist. Uh, so he would, you know, he betrayed the values uh, even of free love and became a sexual predator. 
so the, the, he really had nothing in common with with the value of the hippie movement in the 60s, but he presented himself as this kind of hippie who had matured, you know, and, and now is going to lead the country, uh, but still embrace some of the value of that movement. And he channeled that into supporting overseas intervention, you know, for human rights. And he got these, you know, people who had been protesting in the 60s who are now in their 40s or 50s, uh, and they were actually supporting like the Balkan conflict, there was almost no protest, and a lot of liberals supported it uh, because of some kind of moral crusade. But I go into, you know, I have a, a long chapter on the Balkans, how that was really a very complex conflict without good guys. Uh, and, you know, the Serbs were labeled the bad guys. And if, you know, if anything, the Serbs had been trying to keep the Yugoslav Federation together, where the U.S. was supporting secessionists in Croatia, and they were supporting Muslim extremists. That had a connection with Al-Qaeda, and there were even Al-Qaeda elements that were being brought in to fight the Serbs, and these were supposedly the good guys, and, you know, they uh, Clinton helped craft this image that the U.S. was trying to help create a multicultural state uh, and empower the Muslim, but these were Muslim extremists and fundamentalists, and their leader uh, was an Islamic fundamentalist, uh, uh, and a lot of the atrocities in the war were committed by the Muslims. Well, the, the worst ethnic cleansing was carried out by the Croats. Uh, so uh, it was a completely uh, a deceptive uh, image of the conflict. Uh, and I think that was a crucial conflict in giving legitimacy to, to NATO and developing this rhetoric of humanitarian intervention. And then we later saw that in, you know, by a later liberal leader like Obama, the same kind of rhetoric to justify the U.S. Uh, NATO attack on Libya, which destroyed Libya uh, and created a hellhole there. So, Right, so the same kind of rhetoric, same kind of approach, humanitarian mission, right? Mm -hmm. Same type of stuff. And that kind of, and you, we were talking in the pre-show, this kind of nullifies the anti-war left too, right? Or, or maybe placates them is a better word that this is we're doing this in the best interest of these people not american foreign policy right exactly it taps into this kind of do gooder impulse uh and it's 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 a deception it's a basically co-optation or manipulation of these uh, people and i think clinton and obama are the same kind of leader and that's why they're favored by uh the powers that be because uh, they uh, they uh, are like magicians who uh, ensure that there's no opposition to the warfare state, and you know conservative is going to get a lot of protest, uh, and the you know traditional liberal left sector uh, anti war movement will be you know they mobilized against the Iraq war and there were huge protests and Bush and Cheney were these hated figures, but but Clinton and Obama they they stayed silent and they supported and defended them. Um, and again, they use this rhetoric, uh, you know, and they cultivate a certain image as these liberal do-gooders. And if they're using military force, it's to do good and to stop genocide. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of people are not well enough informed about some of these overseas conflicts. And the, the media reports it in such a distorted, uh, one-sided way uh, that it enables this whole uh, process to, to, to go forward and helps to uh, minimize the dissent. Minimize the dissent. And also you write that the the type, the application of American force also kind of uh, nullifies the dissent too. So they're using this kind of new techno warfare instead of boots on the ground like Vietnam 
where bodies are coming, American bodies are coming home every week, if not every day. This is a kind of detached third party application. Can you expand on that? Exactly. And that's how they can get away with it because if there were boots on the ground and Americans started dying, they would, you know, start asking questions. I mean, their families, uh, friends would be like, why are they dying? And, you know, they would look into it more. Uh, and then, you know, there might be firsthand experience of soldiers coming back like Vietnam saying, well, the situation over there wasn't quite like how they presented in the media. Uh, you know, and that, that's what happened in, in Vietnam. I mean, so many soldiers experienced, uh, you know, uh, saw that the, you know, so-called Viet Cong were fighting uh, you know, for their country and there was a nationalistic uh, impulse behind the Viet Cong. And I mean, if there were more boots on the ground, they would discover the, the reality of those conflicts, like in the Balkans or Libya. But instead, yeah, there are very few soldiers. So, uh, and, you know, there's no draft. So the, the soldiers who are going over there are from the working class or from rural communities or poor, you know, poor rural communities. Uh, and, you know, the you know middle and upper class, uh, they don't really have to pay attention. They go about their lives and, and careers uh, and they don't really worry and they don't probe into what's really going on. Uh, and so they might support a Clinton or Obama, especially on certain dom domestic issues. They favor them over the uh, Republicans. Uh, so they just want to defend them. And they don't really care uh, very much about these overseas interventions. And, yeah, I think the U.S. warfare state is perfected. They use drones. Uh, so there are very few pilots. I mean, there are very few American personnel involved and very few casualties. I mean, the more American casualties, the more people start asking questions and probing into it. And they know that. Now the formula, you know, that was their way to overcome the Vietnam syndrome, you know. I mean, there was a sector you know, who was questioning the entire premise of U.S. foreign policy after Vietnam that we should change our approach. You know, George McGovern, you know, come home, America. But I think the, the so-called power elite wanted to continue to sustain the U.S. empire and uh, sustain aggressive military intervention abroad. But they understood that, uh, you know, huge um, uh, military intervention would garner opposition because the public was now more skeptical. So they had to carry out a very secret, covert way or using, uh, you know, these new technologies to limit uh, American personnel. And then to have these figures like Clinton and Obama to sell it as, as humanitarian intervention. And how did, how did Clinton's policies regarding NATO lead up to the conflict in Ukraine that's still going on today? Well, because um, firstly, Clinton uh, expanded, you know, George H.W. Bush administration had made a promise to Mikhail Gorbachev at the end of the Cold War uh, that the U.S. would not expand NATO toward Russian borders. Uh, and there was hope that, you know, Russia could be incorpor incorporated into a new security architecture uh, and more integrated into European community. And that would be a pathway to peace and that no new Cold War would uh, break out again. But Clinton basically reversed that policy. Uh, some of it may have to do, had to do with lobbying by you know, military industries. Uh, there were certain um, you know group like uh, Lithuanian or Polish Americans who uh, had animus toward Russia. Lobby were also a lobbying block, and he was courting the ethnic vote in some states. That may have been another factor uh, as to why he reneged on that promise. And uh, he supported the expansion of NATO into three countries in 1998, uh, Hungary, uh, Czech, 
uh, I, I can't remember. It may have been Poland was the third. I forget uh, what the third one was, but that, that was a major thing. And, and NATO was viewed, from a Russian point of view, NATO was viewed as very hostile military alliance that was designed to also uh, isolate Russia. And, you know, it was kind of a relic of the Cold War. So that was very antagonistic uh, from a Russian point of view. And George Kennan had warned about, you know, the grand uh, daddy of American foreign policy, <laughs> who had crafted the containment strategy, said this you know, would be a disaster to expand NATO. Uh, the Cold War is over and that Russia will view uh, this is a very hostile way, and it'll empower more nationalistic elements, and it'll create friction between the U.S. and Russia, and could pave the way for a new Cold War, which is exactly what has happened. And the Clinton administration also uh, started the strategy of trying to pry Ukraine away from Russia by investing a huge amount of money uh, to turn uh, Ukraine leadership and the country more toward the West, and this was viewed in a very hostile way in Russia because there was historically a close connection between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, so, and particularly Eastern Ukraine, very closely integrated economically as well as culturally. So Russia saw this as, you know, American is meddling and it's targeting Russia. It's trying to weaken Russia. Um, and that's what helped, you know, empower Putin. And more, a more nationalist leader like Putin draws his strength. Because of these kind of policies, uh, and the West is viewed in you know, a very threatening way. Uh, and that you know, set the groundwork for what we saw play out in later years in Ukraine, where the U.S. escalated by supporting a coup in 2014 uh, and uh, you know, propping up a uh, government that was hostile towards Russia and turning the Ukrainian people against Russia and then uh, you know, supporting attacks against the people of eastern Ukraine when they voted for their autonomy. So I think the groundwork was set by Clinton, and he put us on the path to a new Cold War, when I think there was a lot of possibility with the end of the original Cold War for more people. And this is what people like Kennan envisioned, that now that the, Cold War, the Soviet Union collapsed, we can have a new era of cooperation between the United States and Russia. And there's many mutual benefits that both countries can, can get from that cooperation. And that's really a key to world peace because these are two you know, major countries. Uh, so I, I think it is a tragedy that the U.S. went on this course. But at the time, very few people were speaking out against this. You know, Kennan was kind of a voice in the wilderness. And where was the you know, so-called progressives or anti-war forces to condemn and protest the expansion of NATO and to have the foresight to see that this could create a world of conflict in the future? But they were, they were um, lost in that era, I think, and, and they bought into the Clinton mystique and they didn't, didn't challenge him, just like they didn't challenge Obama, who carried forward a lot of disastrous uh, policies, both in the foreign and, and domestic realm. Yeah, no, it's a tragedy. It really goes all the way back to Clinton and this kind of uh, expansion and not breaking down and not changing that policy. Like, how? how what's the utility of NATO uh, after 93 or whatever, the collapse of the Soviet Union? And now we just have a disaster, huge loss of life, lots of mm -hmm. wasted money, and still asking for more money, too. Like, yeah. we literally have Zelensky. So this, did, this whole event didn't happen in a vacuum. It goes all the way back. Clinton... Maybe you can talk about Clinton's policies in the Middle East. I mean, his policies and what may have uh, exacerbated the conflicts and maybe led up to what happened just this year, October 7th. 
Sure. Well, I think uh, Clinton, uh, basically, there's a lot of continuity uh, as far as, well, even you can trace a line of continuity from Reagan through Clinton through Bush, particularly with the war on terror, because, yeah, Reagan first declared the war on terror uh, in the 1980s. Uh, and it was questionable pretext because, uh, you know, Muammar Gaddafi, who was the leader of Libya, was accused of like a, a terrorist attack uh, in Germany, uh, the bombing of a, a discotheque that killed some American servicemen. But uh, even years later, it was very difficult to prove any connection with Gaddafi. And there had long been a vendetta by the uh, U.S. You know, foreign policy elite against Gaddafi because he had nationalized Libya's oil industry. And the U.S. had had a military base under uh, uh, Idris, who was uh, his predecessor, that Gaddafi had removed. Uh, so there was an alternative agenda, ulterior agenda, and that's when they started playing up the threat of terrorism you know, in the 80s, and they linked it to Gaddafi. Uh, and then Clinton kind of piggybacked off, Ra and Reagan set up this counterterrorism center. And it was headed by Dwayne Claridge, who was a key CIA operative involved in the Iran-Contra operation. And then Clinton escalated uh, the war on terror uh, considerably. Uh, and uh, he presented this as this kind of civilizational war. And, you know, Al-Qaeda had emerged uh, in the 90s, and they started uh, carrying out terrorist attacks um, in Saudi Arabia. And they bombed the USS Cole and the U.S. Embassy. But, I mean, Clinton advocated, like, a, you know, a military approach to fighting terrorism, but never uh, wanted to address the root cause of why Al-Qaeda had struck at American installations. You know, Al-Qaeda had helped, been developed in the, eight, you know, developed out of the Afghan Mujahideen in the 80s. And, this, and that's the paradox from the beginning is that the CIA and U.S. government covertly was often supporting Islamic fundamentalists. That paradox continued in the 90s with Clinton because he was supporting Islamic fundamentalists in the Balkans. And he was even, the, the um, uh, Muslim elements uh, were, were recruiting soldiers from Al-Qaeda in the Middle East. They were going there to fight the Serbs while Clinton was declaring a war on terror. And, he, you know, they refused to ask the question, you know, why was Al-Qaeda targeting American installations? And the answer is because uh, the U.S. had military bases in Saudi Arabia and were considered on Muslim holy ground. So, I mean, uh, what they could have done to stop terrorism was uh, remove those bases from Saudi Arabia. But instead, they just, uh, you know, started, I mean, Clinton adopted the approach that was expanded massively by the Bush administration, like bombing country. You know, he bombed Afghanistan. There were these camps allegedly training uh, al-Qaeda terrorists, and Clinton bombed them. Uh, but, you know, it, it wasn't effective. I mean, the terrorists knew, learned about it before, and it just killed some, a few terrorists and, and, and civilians and angered the people more against the United States. And then he bombed Sudan. You know, they, he claimed that there was this plant that was manufacturing chemical munitions, but there was very little evidence of that. And he bombed the plant. And then, you know, the locals said, well, this uh, plant manufactured medicines that we need. And it looked bad for America. I mean, it's not a good look for America to be just like, you know, indiscriminately bombing places where you don't have good intelligence that that's even a source of terrorism. Uh, so Jeremy, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I vaguely remember some of those bombings coincided with some of his personal uh, public relations disasters. I, if I mm -hmm. remember correctly, there were some bombings in Iraq and that Sudanese that 
coincided with like them wanting maybe to change the news cycle. Did you, have you ever research that or heard about that? Yeah, and that, that could be part of the motive. You know, he discovered a winning political formula uh, that this could score him some political points, and there was, you know, no regard for that civilian would get killed or impacted by these bombings. And like Iraq, yeah, he really, the war really, I mean, you could say the war started in 91 under George H.W. Bush, and then he continued bombing Iraq quite consistently in the 90s, and he, and he was continuing the regime change strategy against Saddam Hussein, and he was even publicizing the mythic WMD before George uh, W. Bush did that, and he had William Cohen, his Secretary of Defense, give this big presentation uh, and had, you know, certain props about how Iraq was manufacturing anthrax and such a threat. But Scott Ritter was a UN weapons inspector and, and he made clear that, and, and, uh, and he wrote a memoir about this and he goes into how the, you know, his body had found no evidence of WMDs and, you know, Clinton, it was just kind of uh, raising fear uh, uh, about something that had been disproven um, and he bombed the Iraq quite consistently, and he was supporting these kind of shady elements who were against Saddam Hussein. I mean, it'd be one thing, you know, Saddam Hussein was an oppressive ruler, but uh, the the Clinton administration and CIA were supporting, like, you know, Ahmad Khalbi, people who the Bush administration later tried to empower, who had no support within Iraq. Clinton first uh, and the CIA in that period was trying to uh, orchestrate coups and bring these kind of people into power, like Ahmed Khalabi, who had been some crook who had lived in Jordan. And, you know, he had no support within Iraq. So, uh, you know, and we see how regime change can be disastrous, even if the leaders are bad. If, you know, the U.S. doesn't have a good understanding of the political dynamic and are just selecting leaders without any, uh, you know, popular support in their own country, and it just fuels chaos, you know, like we've seen, like in Libya. Uh, so it, it's not a good idea. <laughs> and, and the kinds of people they're supporting are extremely unsavory. So Clinton and, and Scott Ritter in his book compared it to like a Bay of Pigs because there was a huge coup plot that Clinton's CIA was supporting, and it ended in failure, and a lot of the coup plotters got executed. And Ritter compares it to like a Bay of Pigs type thing, uh, compared with Cuba. So so Clinton was very active in promoting regime change, playing up the threat of Saddam Hussein, bombing Iraq, ratcheting up sanctions, and that, that had a huge uh, humanitarian effect within Iraq. And these kind of policies, yeah, you know, a turn, you know, is why a lot of, uh, you know, countries and people in the Middle East don't trust the United States or turned against the United States because they saw that they were just, uh, you know, had their own agenda and that they, you know, didn't care about the fate of the people. Uh, like with these sanctions, you know, Madeleine Albright, Clinton's Secretary of State, admitted that they had caused the deaths of 500,000 children because, you know, the country had been bombed out and its infrastructure destroyed in the first Gulf War. And then with the sanctions, they couldn't get equipment needed to rebuild their infrastructure. And the wa things like water supply and sewage had been affected. So it caused all diseases and mal and then they couldn't get medicines. And so it was a huge humanitarian catastrophe. So this just fueled the unpopularity against the United States and really a, a failed regime change strategy that Clinton uh, and his administration was, was advancing in Iraq. And you know, they were bombing countries in the pretext of fighting terrorism. They pioneered the extraordinary rendition where they would kidnap 
alleged terrorist suspects and send them to countries where they knew they would be tortured, like Egypt under Hosni Mubarak, who the Clinton administration was very close with that, you know, poured in all this uh, foreign aid, military aid to Hosni Mubarak, who's one of the worst dictators. And, you know, then he claims to be supporting human rights. You know, we have to go in uh, and bomb the Balkans for human rights. And yet he's cozied up to some of the worst human rights abuses in the world and is sending suspects who hadn't even been tried in the court to be tortured by uh, that leader, Mubarak. So, you know, it's just such a double standard. I, you know, I go into the double standards on human rights. Uh, and there are even question marks about whether the CIA is manipulating some of these you know, terrorist attacks uh, just to create this climate of fear in the United States that would justify military escalation. And there are a lot of question marks about the 1993 World Trade Center bombing because there were all kinds of FBI provocateurs and they seem the ones who, who supplied the bombs uh, uh, for this uh, operation. And, you know, then some of the people involved, you find they have a background, the FBI and CIA, and then there's the Oklahoma City bombing, which, you know, I live in Oklahoma and I studied that in depth. And that looks to be a, a, a false flag operation uh, where there were explosives planted in the building. And McVeigh was set up as a patsy because his bomb, all the military experts said there's no way in hell that that small fertilizer bomb that was in the, the rider truck McVeigh had could have destroyed the Murrah Federal Building the way that right. half the building got blown up, right? Half the, I mean, yeah, these were high the foundation pillars too, which was really remarkable. And people saw there's evidence of bombs being planted before, and everybody who was around the building said there were two bombs that went off, not not one, as in yeah, the official story. Sure. And then McVeigh had an, an intelligence background with the special forces, and he even admitted before his death that he was part of a special mission. And they, they, they set him up as a patsy. So I think the, the American public was being manipulated and, and Clinton was part of this. Uh, I would call it a conspiracy. You, know, you can call me a conspiracy theorist, but there's a huge amount of evidence that there was a massive conspiracy to manipulate public opinion, uh, to create a climate of fear, to support the escalation of military intervention in the Middle East. Uh, that had disastrous consequences, and also to to justify the suppression of civil liberties at home and the tearing up of the U.S. Constitution. Because uh, a year after the uh, Oklahoma City bombing, there was a major bill passed that was a precursor to the USA Patriot Act, and that uh, empowered uh, FBI, turned the U.S. more into a police state and eviscerated a lot of constitutional liberties. And Clinton was behind that, you know, and he, he set the groundwork for the Patriot Act, which he supported. Uh, so it's uh, Clinton is moving us in the course toward totalitarianism and away from the principles on which America was founded. Right. And what's remarkable, too, is the continuity between the administrations and the policies. So Clinton's yeah. laying the groundwork for Bush, too, I think, just like your title says. And a lot exactly. of people don't see that. And I think that's one of the more remarkable yes. uh, camouflages or the Clinton's camouflages that they're somehow different when there's so much similarity. But you're, there's a lot more in your book. I know you got to kind of run. I have to run too. But you, you, go, you go into Africa, Rwandan genocide, which is a whole other important story that happened under him, Latin America. And it just, I think that it just shows like how people can be. And I think it's the same with what happened under Obama is that people can kind of be pre co opted or something by other people's fictional persona. Like you talk about a persona in the book. And I think. 
Clinton successfully put that out there as this, like XAP and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, well, yeah, I could stay a bit longer. Uh, I only have to go in about fifteen or twenty minutes. Okay. But, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think um, to build off your points, well, two things. Uh, one is that, yeah, I think like partisan politics is really can be a trap. You know, they want us to hate uh, our fellow uh, neighbor, their citizen, because we identify with de Democrats or Republicans and they're the enemy. But as you say, you know, if you study Clinton uh, policies and Bush or Reagan policy, you see so much continuity. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, and this so, yeah. is manufactured uh, hatred. And, and the second point, yeah, that it's like a psychological warfare on the American people. Uh, and Clinton is just a vehicle uh, for that psychological warfare. Um, yeah. I think people just don't see his deep ties to intelligence and the really the deep state. I think you make a great point throughout the book, or the parts that I read, that that's really the case. But also you're involved in Covert Action. I guess it goes by Covert Action Magazine now. I thought it was Covert Action Quarterly. Did the title change? Well, um, the magazine yeah, was founded by Philip Agee uh, in the 1970s. He was a CIA whistleblower, and it actually had a column to na name names of CIA agents uh, because the CIA was involved in all kinds of nefarious uh, activities and that were illegal. Um, but, yeah, the, the AG died in 2009, and then his son restarted the magazine as a webzine. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's now called Covert Action Magazine. I see. Okay, I didn't. I didn't know that. I just saw the AG name there, so that makes perfect sense. I think he had to leave the country. His dad had to go to Cuba or something like that. For yeah, well, he there's a great book um, uh, viewers can look up called On the Run. It tells AG's story. Yeah, he had to. He went to Europe, uh, and then they were hounding him. You know, he feared that the CIA would assassinate him because he wrote a book called Inside the Company. A CIA diary, and apparently they they actually sometimes assign that book to CIA recruits. I learned because it, it's like a very detailed diary of what it's like to be in the CIA, uh, and a lot you know it's very accurate history. Uh, and he was in Ecuador and Mexico and various South American countries. But yeah, when he wrote that book, and he actually you know outed some CIA agents. I don't think he released any classified documents, but. Because uh, he or classified documents, but because of that book, they had it in for him. So he, uh, yeah, he lived in Europe. But then I think they were convincing a lot of European uh, governments to remove him from their country. So and I know Chris Agee, uh, who I work with, you know, grew up in this environment, and he had to flee with his father to, you know, like he lived. He didn't have a stable childhood because he was in England, but then the government, uh, you know, wanted uh, to remove him from England. So then he went to Germany. Yeah. He went to a number of European countries. Then eventually he went to Cuba. Yeah. Because he became a leftist and supporter of the Cuban, uh, revolution. And so he ended up living there, although he never collaborated in any way with the Cuban government. There's no evidence that he, you know, coordinated with the Cuban government or gave any secrets, but he did move there and he worked in the tourism industry in Cuba. Gotcha. And so here's the, uh, what it looks like now, Covert Action Magazine. This was only, you can only find this in certain bookstores. Covert Action Quarterly came out like every three months, but it was, it was like, before there were kind of people looking at the deep state, this this magazine was really where to go to. That's where you could only get published too. Like you could only publish in certain magazines 
and like Penthouse or something back in the day, maybe Playboy, but like certain magazines would not take these kind of subjects. But now, because of the internet, you can look into it and you can see Gary Webb here. That's one of your works. You put that out what three days ago. So, Absolutely, yeah. And you did. You exactly. said you did. You did a paper on uh, Vince Foster too, right? I got to read that an article on it. Yeah, yeah. I did a series on political assassinations, and uh, Vince Foster was one of them. And that was clearly an assassination that they framed to look like a suicide, but nobody could believe the suicide story. If if you just look into it, even for a few minutes, you see it's impossible that it was a suicide. Yeah, and Foster was involved in, in what we were discussing earlier, the MENA affair. You know, at the Rose Law Firm, he worked with Hillary Clinton, and he knew all the secrets about the MENA, and he had been involved in the money laundering. And I think he, he had been the Clintons' personal lawyer, and he had the most knowledge about the Clintons. Uh, and I've heard that it's possible he may have been blackmailed by the Mossad. That's one of the theories um, uh, surrounding his death. Oh, interesting. Right. So there's a lot of material to go through all your books and this book. And where's the best place? Do you sell the book at your website? Do people want signed, signed copies? Yeah, you can go to Clarity Press as the publisher of the book. And you can go to my personal website at jeremykuzmarov.com and you'll see all my books because I, I did a book on Obama. Yeah, this is like goes well. Uh, the, the Clinton book goes well with the Obama book. And you have a kind of similar story with Obama as far as the hoodwinking of the public and also a background with the CIA and these case studies show how the CIA and, and intelligence agencies have taken over uh, and have come to dominate our political system. And this should be a concern to all Americans that they betrayed democracy uh, and we need to reclaim our democracy. Right. It's incredible. They, they've have like a, you know, a stable, stable system for politicians. So they put their own own guys in there, make sure, that mm -hmm. they know them and can control them, right? Yeah, um, and that's they package them brilliantly. And, yeah. you know, uh, they're very good at marketing, uh, and they hoodwink many, many people. Obama was supposed to be a great change. Changes come to America. And then the foreign <laughs> policy is the same. Like, yeah. After a while, you're, like, scratching your head. And the corporate ideas, the whole finance, you know, Wall Street aspect of Clinton and Obama. I mean, there's a whole other show we could do of, like, comparing those two together. But I got to run out. Your website is Jeremy Kuzmarov, K-U-Z-M-A-R-O-V. And is that the best place for people to reach you? Or I guess they could reach out to you at Corporate, Corporate Action. Um, sure, yeah. And feel free to email me at jkuzmarov2 <clears throat> at gmail.com. I'd uh, be happy to hear from people. And we also look for new writers or story ideas at Covert Action Magazine. So if you have an idea or you want to write an article for us, that would be great. Yeah, we try and do like some historical article to expose the true history of the CIA. And hopefully that'll be better known uh, to the public. That's part of our mission. And as I was saying, yeah, if you, if you look at you know, Clinton and Obama, you see how the CIA has come to control our whole political system and our media. And that that's not right. The U.S. was not founded uh, uh, to be that kind of uh, country, and uh, it was founded a free country and democracy, and this is a, a betrayal of our democracy. So we need to you know, really develop a movement to, to uh, abolish the CIA and to reclaim our democracy. Right, yeah. People, and people need to be aware of all the kind of shenanigans that have been going on mm -hmm. for decades. And again, yeah. the author's name is Jeremy Kuzmarov, K-U-Z-M-A-R-O-B. And the title of the book we talked about is Warmonger, How Clinton's Malign Foreign Policy Launched the U.S. Trajectory from Bush to 
to Biden, just published December 1st, 2023. Thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. All right, take care. Stay there.